Praise the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Glad to feel a little bit warmer this morning. The youth can go out if there's any youth. Oh, yes. If there's any youth, you've been given permission to go out too. Is that to the uh, to the hut? There we go. We've an honorary youth. <laughs> <laughs> Just before I bring God's word this morning, I would like to say a heartfelt thanks to all of you here who have uh, given so generously to the ministry of the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry um, recently. I'd like to share with you a few things that, just a short update from last year. I'm speaking about the whole ministry, not just us in the UK, but um, just to give you an idea of where your donations, if you are giving to the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry here in the UK, where your donations have helped, and also where those generous donations that you have recently made to us as a church have helped. Last year, we put 13 more missile shelters into Israel, the majority of them in the latter half of the year. And as a result of the appeal that we put out as the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry last October, um, we were able, through your donations, to raise $24,500 in a matter of about three weeks to purchase our first missile shelter. And we're hoping to see that situated in a school not far from Ben Gurion Airport in the near future. And when we do, we'll be putting photographs up on our um, website, hopefully, and also send out an email of thanks. That gives us about 74 shelters so far that we've put into Israel as a ministry. Donations to the ministry also contributed last year to $1.6 million being raised in aid for Israel. That's nearly double that of 2022 and three times what we would typically have raised in prior years. Part of those funds were used to buy five medicycles for the Magan Divida Dom. I don't know how many of you have driven or tried to drive, ever been to, to Jerusalem and tried to drive there. It's virtually impossible. I always say to people, if you hire a car, dump it in Jerusalem and get a taxi to the airport. Um, Medicycles can get around. They're those little motorcycles with two wheels at the front. Um, and that enables them to get through the traffic very quickly. We were also one of the first ministries or donors to purchase a mobile intensive care ambulance last year. There aren't many actually in service, and we were able to provide one of them. And for those soldiers who were serving, uh, believe it or believe it not, they don't get a great deal. They need an awful lot of help. And so those funds have, again, partly been used to provide medical equipment for frontline soldiers, provide them with meals and showers and winter clothing, Shabbat dinners, boots, watches, toiletries, and importantly also financial support for the physical rehabilitation of wounded soldiers and support for families. So there's some of, the, some of the areas. I'd be here for a long time if I was to tell you all of the areas. But again, just heartfelt thanks to each and every one of you who have contributed. If as individuals you'd like to contribute to the ministry here in the UK and to the work that we do and also then to also forward any contributions over to America, you can do that through our website on friendsofisrael.uk. Uh, 
or you could speak to Maggie and I after the service. But I just thought I'd just bring a quick update on what's happened last year, and we look forward to another year of service to God's chosen people this year. But let's turn to our scripture this morning. If you have your Bibles there, turn with me please to Psalm 37. Psalm 37. And while you're turning there, let's just give this time to the Lord. Father, we thank you that, as we heard this morning, that you are indeed a wonderful God, a great God. You're a gracious God, a merciful God. A God who is full of loving kindness and gracious gracious to us, Lord. And blessed be your name. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that your word not only reveals yourself to us, but also enables us to draw closer to you. That you've revealed to us, Lord, the end and the beginning. And we look forward to that glorious time when you return. Father, as we read your word this morning, I pray that you would help us through your Holy Spirit to draw deeper, draw nearer, draw closer to you. And that you will bless the public reading of your word today in Jesus' name. Amen. For the sake of time, we won't read the psalm uh, through now, but we'll go through it verse by verse. And in this psalm, we see how David shares with us the wisdom that he's learned as a result of his own suffering at the hands of wicked and ungodly men during his life. And it's a psalm of encouragement in which we discover that the, the Lord will never forsake those who are his. If we look at verse 1, we can see that David begins with an instruction. He says, fret not. Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. Fret not. English dictionaries will tell you that fret means to worry, to fuss, to vex, to agonize, or to trouble. But the Hebrew word, that's hurrah, implies a, a different connotation Strong's provides us with the following. Be angry, to burn, to be displeased, to grieve, to be incensed, to kindle, and to be wroth. You know, like David, there's, there will be times in our life when all of us will suffer from times of trial, suffering, and tribulation. And oftentimes... We'll feel, we will feel angry, we'll feel incensed, we'll feel vexed by the actions of, as David puts it, evildoers and workers of iniquity. Jeremiah went so far as to challenge the Lord over such people. In chapter 12, verse 1 of Jeremiah, he said, Righteous are thou, O Lord, when I plead with thee, yet let me talk with thee of thy just judgments or justice. And he goes on to say, Wherefore doth the way of the wicked prosper? Wherefore are they all happy that deal very treacherously? And I think if we were to look around us at the world today, we would probably ask the same question. Why is it that criminals, evildoers and sinners, if you will, appear so often to prosper when the honest and the upright suffer? Why do the wicked prosper? Well, perhaps the short answer is that the present ruler of this earth is is Satan. And David says there's no point in fretting, becoming incensed, or getting all het up over them. William MacDonald puts this so eloquently in his Believer's Bible commentary. He says this. 
He says we must not allow ourselves to fret because of evildoers. The danger is that we will lie in bed at night and rehearse the whole outrageous episode. How often have we done that? I'm sure, I'm sure many of us could identify with that, couldn't we? The danger is we'll lie in bed at night and re rehearse the whole outrageous episode. First, we think of all they said and did. Then we go over how we answered them. Then we wish we'd thought of some other choice brickbats to hurl at them. I love the way he's putting this. I can identify with all of this, can you? Soon our digestive juices have turned to sulfuric acid and we lie and toss and turn, wondering when sleep will ever come. Our fretting is hurting no one but ourselves and accomplishes nothing. And MacDonald finishes with this simple statement. We must not do it. Stop it. Fretting accomplishes nothing and hurts no one but ourselves. I certainly need to remember that sometimes, do you? Furthermore, we read in verse 1, if we go on reading, we say, neither let thou be envious of the workers of iniquity. In other words, don't desire to be like them. The late Chuck Smith commented this way. He said, how easy it is to fret over situations. How easy it is to worry. How easy it is to become anxious. And the things that create the fretfulness within my own heart are just those things that are spoken of here, the evildoers, those who are prospering in their wicked devices. The fact that wickedness seems to triumph, evil triumphs over good. These things cause me to fret. And yet, these are the very things that I'm told I'm not to fret over. God is in control. Therefore, I'm not to fret over the evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. Why? Well, because evildoers and workers of iniquity have a sure end. Look at verse 2. They shall be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. No matter how much they have, it's only going to be temporary. Just like the grass or the herb, they will prosper for a while and then either be cut down or wither away and die. But on the other hand, if we've believed on the Lord Jesus for our salvation, we have a different destiny. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 to 54. He says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all shit sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment at the twinkling of eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this, in this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Are you looking forward to that trumpet call? And being changed and raised incorruptible in the twinkling of an eye? Are you? Yes. And you don't sound very convinced this morning. <laughs> are you as Titus puts it in chapter 2 verse 13 looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our saviour Jesus Christ you know that should be the hope of all of us shouldn't it we shouldn't fret because of evildoers or envy workers of iniquity but rather as we read in verses 3 through 7 of this psalm trust in the Lord and do good 
So shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thy heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. And he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light, and judge thy judgment at the noonday. Rest in the Lord, and wait patiently for him. And again, fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. If we look at those five verses that we've just read, they actually contain an important lesson. We're given here five keys or five instructions on how to grow in the Lord, how to draw closer to him. Let me just repeat some of those words. They are, verse 3, trust in the Lord. Verse 4, delight thyself in the Lord. Verse 5, commit thy way unto the Lord. Verse 7, rest in the Lord. And again in verse 7, wait patiently for him. And then we have that command the second time to fret not. But if we look at those, we can see if we're going to grow closer to the Lord and even grow in our walk with the Lord, we must begin with trust. Trust in the Lord and do good. But what does it mean to trust in the Lord? Well, if we think about it, trust means having confidence, certainty, a deep reliance upon faith or belief in someone or something. Spurgeon explains it this way. He says, faith cures fretting. Sight is cross-eyed and views things only as they seem. Hence, her envy. Faith has clearer optics to behold things as they really are. Hence, her peace. When we fret, we are distracted from trusting God and doing good. And so we must place our belief, our faith, our trust solely upon God. Because as we read in Hebrews 11 verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of him, of them sorry, that diligently seek him. Furthermore, if we look at this verse, our trust in God will result in an action on our part. Look at the, sec- the, the beginning of that verse. Trust in the Lord and what? Do good. Jesus said in Matthew 5 verse 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. A little bit further down in verse 3b, we read that trust in the Lord also brings a reward. So shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily shalt thou be fed. We all know Jehovah Jireh. God is our provider. And so we must learn to trust him for all our needs. He's going to provide us with all the necessities of life. And so we are to trust in the Lord and do good. That second instruction is to delight in the Lord. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. If we take delight in someone, we take pleasure in them. We experience joy in their presence. In order to experience delight in someone, however, we need to truly know them, don't we? There's a theologian from America, James M. Boyce, who said this. He said, the one who trusts God also finds him to be a source of exquisite delight. For he is the perfection of grace, compassion, mercy, kindness, patience and love he is in other words like jesus christ and the better we know him the more we inevitably delight in him 
And he goes on to say, the reason many apparent Christians do not delight in God is that they do not know him very well. And the reason they do not know him well is that they do not spend time with him. Warren Wearsby puts it this way. He says, when we delight in the Lord, we learn to appreciate the delights of the Lord. Our desires become his desires, and we pray and live in his will. Is that true of you? Is that true of me? Our third instruction is to commit, verses 5 and 6. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass, and he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light, and thy judgment as the noonday. Commit and trust. Here we can see those two go hand in hand. We're to commit our way to the Lord. But we can only commit our way to the Lord if we trust him. Committing to the Lord, what does that mean? Well, it means that we should entrust him with everything. What does everything mean? Think about it, everything. What's everything in your life and in my life? Surely it has to be our, our life itself, our home, our job, our health, our family, our possessions, our children, our pets. Everything, our all. And when we're committed to God... He is committed to us. James 4 verse 8 says, Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. We have a song we sing that, don't we? When we commit ourselves and draw near to God, he causes our righteousness to shine like the noonday sun. In other words, we radiate the, life of, the light of Christ that's within us. Jesus said of you and I in Matthew 5, verses 14 to 16, he said, You are the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel or a basket, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light, Jesus says, so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. There's a challenge here too. Are we committed to Christ and radiating his light to those around us? As we walk out in the street, as we meet with our friends, our neighbours, our colleagues, what do they see in us? Do they see a miserable old soul? Or do they see somebody radiating the joy of Christ in their life? I pray it's the latter but it's not always easy if we're honest, is it? And so now that we've committed our way to the Lord, we can progress to our fourth point, and that's rest. Beginning of verse 7, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. But how should we rest in the Lord? What does it mean? When we think of rest, we perhaps think of sitting down or stopping whatever we're doing for a moment. You know, as that saying, isn't there? A change is as good as a rest. But is that what that word means here? Is that what rest means here? Can I suggest that we consider resting in the Lord in terms of holding our peace, having a quiet self, being silent, being still? This is more the sense of the 
Hebrew word for rest in this context. And when we're acting in this way, among other things, we have the capacity to listen, to allow the Lord to touch our thoughts, perhaps bring a scripture to mind or inspire us in some way in our ministry. We can't hear the Lord if we're not resting quietly, can we? He doesn't shout at us, does he? What do we say about the Lord, his voice? It's a still, small voice, isn't it? And when we rest in the Lord, we're able to do something else. We're able to lay down our burdens and allow him to carry them. Jesus said in Matthew 11:30, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And then we come to the next instruction, that's to wait in verse 7 in the second half. Wait patiently for him. Our fifth instruction. How often does our impatience overrule this command? How often do we want to wait for things? You know, we live in this now generation, don't we now? We get on our phone, on our computer, we tap it away and we want, we want an answer in milliseconds. Not, I, I get so frustrated if my computer takes more than a second or two to provide me with an answer to something I've typed in. How often do we want to wait? Well, David gives us a good reason to wait patiently on the Lord. In Psalm 27, verse 14, he says this, Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. And again in Psalm 40, verse 1, he says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. You see, waiting on the Lord allows him to strengthen our hearts, giving us courage to face life situations. Waiting on the Lord gives the Lord the chance to hear us when we call out to him. But sometimes we need to wait patiently for his answer, don't we? Because he doesn't always answer when we want him to. Lamentations 3 verse 5, The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. And Isaiah 40 verse 31, They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. There's a reward for waiting on the Lord. And before we move on to the next verses, let's have one of those Selah moments that we often see in the Psalms. That word Selah effectively means to pause or to pause and reflect. And so let's do that here for a few seconds. Do you remember those five instructions that we were given? Trust in the Lord. Delight in the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Well, besides the instructions to work, trust and delight, to commit, to rest and wait, there's something else that's very important for us to learn and to take heart from these verses. Did you notice that after each of those instructions, there's a phrase, in the Lord, to the Lord, for him or for the Lord? What does that tell us? It tells us that in all these things, the Lord is our resource and not ourselves. And we must never forget this, because if we take heed of that, those things become real. 
It's always the Lord, not us. Verse 7 ends with the repetition of the command to fret not. Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. And it then continues by calling us in verses 8 and 9 to cease from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil, for evildoers shall be cut off. Even if an evildoer does prosper, we must not become angry or resentful. This can lead us to react with perhaps violent words or, or even sometimes acts. and We can become offenders ourselves. I've got a life application Bible and the note for these verses says this. Anger, rage and losing our temper are very destructive emotions. They reveal a lack of faith that God loves us and is in control. We should not worry. Instead, we should trust in God, giving ourselves to him for his use and safekeeping. When you dwell on your problems, you become anxious and angry. But if you concentrate on God and his goodness, you will find peace. Where do you focus your attention? Where do I focus my attention? Our attention must be focused on the Lord, mustn't it? Because in verse 9b we read that those who wait upon the earth will inherit the earth. But the fate of the wicked is being reinforced again in verse 10. For yet a little while and the wicked shall not be. Yea, thou shalt diligently consider his place and it shall not be. But David goes on to emphasize in verse 11 that the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Familiar words? Jesus repeats those, doesn't he, in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. But let's not confuse meekness with weakness. A meek person is a humble person. And being humble takes strength. Strength of character. It means giving when others take. It means loving when others hate. It means forfeiting something of ourselves in order to serve. In other words, it means putting others before ourselves. We could perhaps put it this way. Being meek means being selfless and not selfish. Not being prideful or, or boasting. Are we being meek? Perhaps today the answer might be yes, but was I meek yesterday? Will I be meek tomorrow? Both David and Jesus tell us that the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. There's a reward for the weak. But thinking about inheriting the earth, what earth will we as meek people, believers in Jesus, inherit? And when will we be able to delight ourselves in an abundance of peace? We heard this morning, and we hear every day in our news, don't we, that there's almost no peace anywhere in the world today. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem earnestly, but we know that that peace for Jerusalem, that true peace will only come when Jesus the Messiah returns. But it doesn't stop us for praying. It doesn't stop us for seeking the Lord for mercy for that.
All we see on the earth today is violence, wars, and pollution. And it's not the same earth that the Lord created, is it? And we can't really enjoy that abundance of peace at that time in the sense of earthly peace. But the earth we shall inherit and the peace we shall delight in is yet to come. William MacDonald again says for the church, and remember that includes both Jewish and Gentile believers, for the church this peace will begin when the Saviour descends into the clouds to catch away his waiting people and take them to their heavenly home. That, brothers and sisters, is the rapture. We spoke about it earlier, didn't we? For the believing remnant of Israel and the nations, it will begin when the Lord Jesus returns to earth. That's his second coming. When the Lord Jesus returns to earth to decimate his foes and to reign for a thousand years of peace, the millennium. We can look even further ahead in that respect to Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. Where John saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things have passed away. Are you looking forward to that day? You're very silent. I know it's been cold out there, but it's warmer today. <laughs> but we need to note, though, that this inheritance is reserved for those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and have been saved. Those who have been forgiven by the shedding of his blood on the cross of Calvary. And my challenge always is, is this you? Well, I certainly hope so, because in the following verses, David again speaks of the wicked and what will befall them. And as we read these verses, verses 12 through 23, I want you to notice the contrast between those counted as wicked and those counted as righteous by the Lord. Beginning in verse 12. The wicked plotteth against the just and gnasheth upon him with his teeth. The Lord shall laugh at him, for he seeth that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn out the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy and to slay such as be of upright conduct. Their sword shall enter into their own heart and their bows shall be broken. We can see examples in scripture of the wicked falling on their own sword. Just two of them here, Haman. Remember Haman? Haman, he was hung on the very gallows that he had built for Mordecai. We see that in Esther chapter 7, verse 10. And Saul, who sought to kill David, but eventually fell on his own sword. You see that in 1 Samuel 31, verse 4, and 1 Chronicles 10, verse 4. But in verse 16, we see our first contrast. A little that a righteous man hath is better than the riches of many wicked. You see, no matter how much a criminal might gain from their activities or how rich they become, and, and there's no denying that some have become very rich indeed, 
Those whom the Lord counts as righteous have so much more. The little that you and I have as believers in Christ is so much better than the riches of those evildoers. Jesus reminds us of this truth in Mark chapter 8, verse 36. He says, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his soul? And then in verses 17 through 19 in Psalm 37, we move on and read that the arms of the wicked shall be broken in verse 17a. But contrast this in 17b, but the Lord upholdeth the righteous. The Lord knoweth the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time, and in the days of famine they shall be satisfied. The power of the wicked will eventually be broken, but our inheritance is eternal. Peter puts it this way. He puts our inheritance in these words in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, that fadeth not away, that's reserved in heaven for you, who were kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We're being kept by the power of God. Hallelujah. But coming back again to the fate of the wicked in verse 20, we read that the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord shall be as the fat of lambs. They shall consume into smoke shall they consume away. Just as the fat of a sacrificial animal is totally consumed, the fire of God's wrath will utterly consume them. In verse 21, we read that the wicked borrows and payeth not again. You see, the wicked only ever take, don't they? They never give back. But by way of contrast, in that same verse, it goes on to say, the righteous showeth mercy and giveth. And verse 22, for such as be blessed of him shall inherit the earth, but they that be cursed of him shall be cut off. As the writer to the Hebrews reminds us in chapter 10, verse 31, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But we read again in Psalm 37, verses 23 and 4, that the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. Spurgeon explains it this way. He says, all his course of life is graciously ordained, and in loving kindness all is fixed, settled, and maintained. No reckless fate, no fickle chance rules us. Our every step is the subject of divine decree. Our obedience is a delight to the Lord. And we can be certain that if, or rather, when we fall, the Lord is there to restore us. David continues in verses 25 and 6 by saying, I've been young and now I'm old. Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his soul begging bread? He is ever merciful and lendeth, and his seed is blessed. Here again, David is speaking from his own life experience. He's looking back on those years that he's already lived. 
He knew the goodness of the Lord. He knew the Lord's provision. But he knew that not only for his own needs, but also for the needs of his offspring, his children. And though our help certainly comes from the Lord, it's provided through the kindness of others, isn't it? We can't just sit there and say, oh, the Lord's going to provide. If we, we've got to do something about it. And if we profess to love and follow the Lord, just like the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, we must be ready to help our brothers and sisters in their time of need. Always be ready to help others in time of need. To be selfless and not selfish. Verse 27, depart from evil and do good and dwell forevermore. For the Lord loves judgment or justice and forsaketh not his saints. They are preserved forever. But the contrast here is that the seed of the wicked should be cut off. When we're saved, there's an act of repentance on our part. That means that we turn around. We leave that which is ungodly behind us and we look to that which is godly. In other words, we depart from evil. But then we're told to do good in order to enjoy eternal life. But that's a bit of a contradiction in a way, isn't it? Just being a good person or doing good deeds isn't going to save us or grant us eternal life. Doing good works won't save us. Only the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross can do that. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But we are all called to do good. All called to do good. And that means that everything we do, all our works, must be for the glory of God and not for us. We're talking not here about fleshly works. We're talking about the works we do for the glory of God and the furtherance of his kingdom. God's a God of justice. And it's in keeping with his justice to make his saints eternally secure. It's not that the saints deserve eternal life, but that Christ died to purchase it for them. And that God must honour the terms of the purchase. That's from David Guzik's Enduring Word Commentary. But whilst the righteous will be preserved forever, the wicked will be cut off, separated from God, separated from Christ for all eternity. And that brings us to verse 29. Strictly speaking, this verse applies to Israel. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell therein forever. And this verse tells us that God is going to make good his promise to Abraham and to the children of Israel. He promised them earthly blessings. He did not promise that to you and I. We didn't get the blessings of the land. We're blessed with all spiritual things. But we're not blessed with earthly blessings. As Gentiles or the church, we have got no claim to the land that God promised Abraham and his seed for an everlasting possession. The land was promised to Israel. And God will sustain his chosen people and he's promised that land to be their inheritance forever. Genesis 13 verse 15. He says again in Amos 9 verse 15 that he will plant them upon their land and they shall no more be pulled up out of their land which I have given them. I read that as the fact that Israel's now back in not all of the land but certainly back in the land. 
And my hope and belief is that God's not going to pull them up out of Vatican again. They're going to stay there. No matter what happens in this current situation, God's hand is for his people, Israel. But we, we need to understand that both believing Jew and believing Gentile will indeed dwell together throughout eternity in the new heaven and the new earth, which is to come, as we mentioned earlier. And once again, we need to remember that there will be a time of peace ahead of us to hope for that. And then once again, in verses 30 and 31, David turns to the behavior of the righteous. He says, The mouth of the righteous speaketh wisdom, and his tongue talketh of just judgment or justice. The law of his God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. If we know the word of God, we will have godly principles. And we'll strive to speak wise words and deal fairly with everyone. And if we walk according to God's will as it's revealed to us in his word, we won't stumble. But although the Lord will not cause us to stumble, there are many who will in their attempt to prevent us from fulfilling our calling and ministry. The closer we walk with the Lord, the more the enemies of God will try to bring us down. David expresses this in verse 32. He says, the wicked watch the righteous and seeks to slay him. And if you're one of those who are actively doing the Lord's work, you can expect opposition. In fact, you will have opposition. We have opposition, don't we, in the Lord's work. We can all probably identify with that. And that's nothing new. Throughout the scriptures, we read of Satan's attempt to thwart the saints of God. They tried to kill Jesus. They'll try to kill us too. Now, I don't necessarily mean that they'll literally try to kill us, or that could happen. But they'll try to kill the work that we are doing for God. They will try to kill your witness to the community here. They will try to kill the work that you're doing to bring a message of hope to those around you. Especially if we're working in the area of supporting Israel and the Jewish people. But in verse 33, we're reminded of the Lord's preservation. He says, the Lord will not leave him, that's the righteous person, in his, that's the evil one's hand, nor condemn him, that's the righteous person again, when he is judged. You see, the Lord isn't going to leave us at the mercy of the wicked. The Lord's going to protect us. The accuser of the brethren, that's Satan. He's accusing us before God day and night. But his false accusations will be thrown out. Why? Because we have a defender. We have an advocate in heaven. Jesus Christ, the righteous. We read that in 1 John 2 verse 1. Who's interceding for us 24-7. Romans 8 verses 33 and 4. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It's Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Now that question in the middle of that doesn't suggest that it's Christ who's condemning us. It's the question about, is Satan condemning us? Well, he might be, he is. But we have the Lord Jesus Christ on our side. 
And as we come to these final verses of the psalm, we're again urged for the third time to wait on the Lord and to keep his way. And for the fifth time, we read that the wicked will be cut off. Verses 34 to 36. Wait on the Lord and keep his way, and he shall exalt thee to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, thou shalt see it. I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a green bay tree, yet he passed away, and lo, he was not. Yea, I sought him, but he could not be found. Here we see the the wicked likened to a a green or a young tree, symbolizing their power and their prosperity. But here the tree flourishes only for a short time before passing away to nothing, and furthermore, not to be seen ever again. And then again we can see a contrast between the wicked and the righteous in verse 37. Mark the perfect or the righteous man and behold the upright. For the end of that man is peace. Again, there's that promise of an eternal peace. Whereas the righteous man is upright and can look forward to an eternity of peace with the living God. There's going to come a time when in verse 38 the transgressors will be destroyed together and the end of the wicked will be cut off. And then finally we come to the last two verses. A promise to those who are righteous. Begins again with a but indicating that contrast. But the salvation of the righteous is of the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. And the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them. Because they trust in him. And it's in this final paragraph that we're reminded that Our salvation is not of ourselves, but of God, and that God is our ever-present help in time of trouble. And so, just to conclude this this word this morning, we could summarize Psalm 37 in just two sentences. Firstly, the Lord will preserve the righteous and destroy the wicked. And secondly, he will never, never, ever, 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 ever forsake his saints. If you are counted among the saints have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, you can rest assured that your salvation is guaranteed because God will never leave you or forsake you. Hallelujah. Let's just pray before we come to our final hymn. Father, We thank you for the richness of your word. Father, in many ways we thank you for the simplicity of the word that we've just read. That you will never forsake us or leave us. But you warn the wicked, the evildoers, that their end is to be cut off. Father, we would that nobody was cut off. Lord, you yourself said that you would that all men would come to salvation and a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our prayer too, Lord. We pray for those that we know that are unsaved. Lord, that you would soften their hearts, take the scales from their eyes and block their ears. That they would turn, trust and believe in you and be saved. As we go from here this week, this day, Help us, Lord, to be faithful, to be that light that shines in the darkness. And help us to be faithful servants of yours in Jesus' name.